The Old Testament reading for today is Genesis 2:18 through 25, so something new now. Uh, we were in the previous passage for quite some time. And then the New Testament reading is Mark 10, 2 through 9, Genesis 2.18, Mark 10, 2. Uh, here we will uh, move through Genesis 2.18 through 25 rather quickly today. Uh, and then my, my plan, my objective is to actually camp out on the subject of marriage for some time. So just as we were introduced to the idea of the Sabbath uh, in uh, Genesis uh, 2, uh, 1 through 3, and we camped out and uh, dealt with the Sabbath to- topically for a while, so too my, my plan is to um, camp out on the subject of marriage and the weeks to come since marriage is introduced to us here in this text. Genesis 2.18, let us give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let us go now to Mark chapter 10. We will pick up in verse 2. Mark 10, verse 2. There we read, and Pharisees came up in order to test Jesus. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the explanation of it and and especially our application of it to our lives today. It is fascinating for me to consider how the creation narrative of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 and the creation narrative of Genesis 2, 4 through 25, complement one another. Maybe that's because I'm strange, but it is fascinating to me. I've really enjoyed uh, comparing these two creation accounts. Uh, Some, as you know, have thought that the creation accounts of Genesis 1 and the creation account of Genesis 2 are different and contradictory. Our view, though, is that they are different and complementary. They tell the same story of creation, but from different perspectives in order to highlight different truths. Uh, This is especially evident, I think, when we consider what Genesis 1 has to say about the creation of man, male and female, and compare it to what Genesis 2 has to say about the creation of man, male and female. You'll notice that both Genesis 1 and 2 address God's creating of man, male 
and female. And we find, uh, upon close examination, that the two accounts do not contradict one another, though they emphasize very different things. The two accounts do not contradict one another, but instead they complement each other, so that we have two perspectives on the same act of God. God created in the beginning man, mankind, humankind, and he made them male and female. Genesis 1 gives us one view of it, Genesis 2 another, and the two together give us a full view or perspective of God's intent or purpose for humankind. Here is what Genesis 1 had to say about the creation of man made male and female, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so these facts were established about the creation of man in Genesis 1. God created man. He created mankind in his image and likeness, and he created man, plural, male and female. God blessed the male and female. He commissioned them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and to subdue it, exercising dominion over the creatures that God had made. This they were to do to the glory of the God who made them. But the story of Genesis 2, 4 and following does not contradict what has been said in chapter 1, but it complements it and provides a different perspective. Uh, Remember, everything is up close and personal in Genesis chapter 2. If I were to say, what is the main difference between Genesis 1 and 2? It's that in Genesis 1, God is portrayed as the transcendent God, the the creator of heaven and earth. But how does He create? He speaks into existence everything that is. In Genesis 2, it is the same God being uh, described, but He is no longer just Elohim, the transcendent one. He is Yahweh Elohim, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And He is creating things, but... But the emphasis here is that He is near. He is not just the transcendent God, but He is the eminent God. He is the one who is near uh, to His creation and near to His his creatures. Um, He is the God who is near. He is the God who makes and keeps covenant with man. And I think the nearness of God to man is powerfully portrayed in Genesis 2 and how it describes God's creation of man. In Genesis 1, we were simply told, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. It is true. It is all true. But in the narrative of Genesis 2, notice that more detail is given concerning how God created man. Look with me at 2.7. There we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And So can you picture the nearness of God uh, to man in this passage? He is not a God who sits afar off from his creation, but he is a God who is near to us. When he created man, he formed him from the dust of the ground with his hands, as it were. He imparted life and breath to the man by breathing into his nostrils, The breath of life. Obviously, the language here is anthropomorphic. You understand that, right? God is being portrayed as a potter who, with his hands, takes dirt and forms it into something. And here we are told that God did that with Adam. He took dust from the ground and formed uh, the man. Uh, Here I also have an image of someone who is performing CPR on someone. Someone is there laying on the ground lifeless, and another comes and, and puts their mouth on theirs, and with the breath that is in their lungs, breathes into that lifeless creature 
life again. Uh, so God did that with, with Adam. There Adam is. He was formed by God from dust, but he was at first lifeless. And what did God do except breathe life into man? God is near. What a beautiful uh, picture this is. God imparted life, breathed to the man. Uh, he imparted life and, and breath to the man by breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. A whole world of truth is crammed into this little narrative. That's why I love narrative. Uh, you know, you, you can say things in, 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 a, in a straightforward way, um, but it would take you a long time to say all the things that you can say in just a short little story, in just a short little narrative. A whole world of truth is crammed into this little narrative. For example, we learn that God is the creator, we are the creature. He is the potter, we are the clay. Doesn't the scripture pick up upon that theme time and time again and, and emphasize this relationship? God is the potter. Uh, you are the clay. Paul in Romans 9 even picks up, uh, up upon this, this theme and says, what right do we to have to, to complain against God, therefore? What right does the, 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 the pot have to, to speak back to the potter saying, why have you formed me like this? God is the potter and we the clay. And although we are living creatures, we also learn through this narrative that the kind of life that we possess is not the same kind of life that God possesses. Are you alive right now? Yes, you are. You are a living creature, but the kind of life that you have is not the same kind of life that God possesses. God is life. He has life within Himself. He had no beginning and will have no end. He is eternal. He possesses life to the full, and He received it from no one. God is life, and He is the giver of all life. No one breathed into God's nostrils, as it were, the breath of life. But He breathed the breath of life into us. Our life, though it is true life, is derived from God, therefore. We have life only because God has determined to impart it to us. Indeed, it is true that in Him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed His offspring, as Paul said in Acts 17, 28. Notice also what is communicated about our nature in this little narrative. What is man, we might ask? Well, from Genesis 2, we, we begin to see, we learn that Man is body and soul. Again, this is not true of God. God is a most pure spirit, the scriptures say. And neither is it true of the angels that he created. They also are spiritual beings, spiritual creatures. The scriptures call them ministering spirits, Hebrews 1.14. But when God created man, he formed him from the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. Man is therefore made up of a material body, and a non-material soul. These two things together, body and soul, are what make a human human. What is man? He is a creature made in the image of God, body and soul together. I took this out of my notes because it was a tangent that was unnecessary, but I'll say it anyways. Um, death is, is, in some senses, very unnatural. Have you ever thought about this? When God made Adam in the beginning, He made him a human being, body and soul. Uh, prior to the fall, this was God's ideal, this was God's intent, that man would exist as such forever and ever. But when man sinned, death entered into the world, spiritual death, but ultimately physical death. And what happens when we physically die? Well, the body goes into the grave and the soul goes somewhere else, either into the presence of the Lord or into, uh, into judgment, into a form of judgment. Uh, that, that state of existence uh, brought about by death is not natural to us if we take into consideration how God originally made mankind. 
And this is why also when we consider the book of Revelation and see the new heavens and new earth, we are not going to have a soulish, spirit-like existence for all eternity. In fact, the souls of the martyrs cried out to God saying, How long, O Lord? You know, remember that from the book of Revelation? At the end of time, bodies will be raised and reunited to souls back into that condition, um, that condition that God originally created man in. Man is body and soul. And I have made these observations about the creation account of Genesis 2 in order to demonstrate that this little narrative that we have before us is extremely important. More than just a bare-bones account of of creation, the narrative establishes essential truths upon which the rest of Holy Scripture builds. Indeed, the truths communicated here in Genesis 1 and 2 are foundational truths. They're foundational truths. And so we need to pay careful attention to this little story. More than just a bare-bones account of creation, we have truths foundational to our faith contained within it. An observation about the creation narrative that is before us uh, that is more central to the point of the sermon today is this. Notice that God created man, male and female, according to Genesis 1. But in Genesis 2, we learn something new. We learn that God made the male first. God made the male first. Therefore, we must say that God created Adam before he created Eve, and this is significant. Uh, The rest of the scriptures uh, say that this is significant. Notice the sequence of events in Genesis 2. We are told of the creation of Adam, the male man, not the male man, but the male man, in Genesis 2-7. Chapter 2, verse 8-14 through describes God planting a garden in Eden. In 2:15 through 17 we see that God enters into a covenant of works with Adam. It's there that we read that the Lord God took the man, that is Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, that is Adam, Adam alone, saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die." All of this was done prior to the creation of the woman whose name will be Eve. In Genesis 1, we are simply told that God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. But in Genesis 2, we learn that there was an order to things. God created Adam prior to creating Eve. God placed Adam in the garden that he had made. God entered into a covenant with Adam, the male human. It is not until verses 18 through 25 that we hear of the creation of Eve. And these details of the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 are very important. Uh, What we will find as we give consideration to the rest of Holy Scripture is that the details of this narrative are foundational to our view of humanity in general. And we find some instruction here pertaining to the marriage relationship in particular. Uh, We find that there are similarities and differences that exist between males and females. Um, Now, This is not a very popular thing to say today. You've probably noticed. In fact, um, this thought occurred to me. I would probably need a security detail if I were to say it at one of our more liberal universities. Um, This is a very unpopular thing to emphasize today. The differences that exist between males and females. Uh, The push, it seems, in our culture is to wipe those away and and to to blur all distinction uh, so that the two are considered uh, the same. Um, But uh, we must say it nevertheless, um, though men and women are in some respects the same, uh, they are both human beings made in the image of God, this is very significant, 
we must also say that in other respects they are very different. And they are different not by accident, but by, but by design, by the design of God. Uh, when God created man, that is mankind, he created the male and female, both, the Adam, both Adam and Eve were human beings made in the image of God. Both were blessed by God. Together they were to fill the earth, subdue it, and exercise dominion over it. All of this they share in common. But the narrative of Genesis 2 makes it plain that there are differences between the male and the female. Adam was formed first. He was placed in the garden before the woman was even formed. And the covenant of works was made with him in particular. I'm going to refrain at this time from teasing all of this out. Uh, for now, I simply want you to see that the details of the narrative are important. Uh, this passage is foundational. It serves as the foundation for what the rest of the scriptures will say about mankind, males and females, and uh, the marriage relationship, which we will eventually come to focus on. Uh, here we find, for example, the foundation of what the New Testament will say about men and women being one in Christ. That is emphasized in the New Testament. You are one in Christ, co-heirs in Christ. You stand on equal footing before God and before the Lord. But also, the New Testament says some things about the headship of the husband and the marriage relationship, etc., etc. Secondly, notice that when Eve was formed from Adam's side, she was formed in order to complement him. She was formed in order to complement him. Now, when I use the word complement... I hope you understand what I mean. I certainly do not mean that the woman was created for the purpose of saying nice things to Adam. Okay, uh, That is not the word I am using here. Obviously, that's not what I mean. I, I, I'm not saying that Eve was created to compliment Adam, C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-N-T, but that she was created to compliment him, C-O-M-L-E-M-E-N-T. Uh, the woman was created by God to correspond to the man. That is the point being made. She was designed by God to match the man. Eve was designed to be Adam's companion. The female complemented or brought to perfection the male by the design of God. Do you remember the refrain that was heard throughout Genesis 1? And God saw that it was good. Do you remember hearing that over and over again? in the days of creation, and God saw that it was good. This phrase appeared after each of God's creative acts. God created this or that, and we read, and God saw that it was good. And do you remember how that at the end of the sixth day of creation, the day on which God created man, male and female, the text did not only say that God saw that it was good, but God saw that everything he made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good, because he had brought it to completion. The pinnacle of God's creation had been brought into existence. It was very good. Everything that God had made, including the male and female, having been made in his image, were very good. But in Genesis 2, we are again told of the creation of man, but this time from a different perspective. We learn that the male human and the female human were not made at exactly the same time, but that the male was made first, and it was only after God had placed him in the garden and entered into covenant with him that the female was created. And notice what God had to say about the male human existing alone apart from the female human. It's actually startling. If we were to read Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2, we have grown accustomed to, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. But when we come to Genesis 2, we hear something different. 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. It is not good that the man should be alone. This is the first time that we hear God speak since the creation narrative of Genesis 1. And what does he say? 
Well, because the narrative has taken us back chronologically to that brief period of time when the male existed apart from the female, everything had not been brought to completion at that time, we hear God say these words, it is not good, it is not good that the man should be alone. Notice something here. There are three distinct sections in the opening chapters of Genesis that describe God's creative activities. Follow along with me for just a moment. There are three distinct sections in the opening chapters of Genesis that that describe God's creative activities. There is the prologue, which describes the creation of the heavens and the earth generally and comes to focus upon the creation of man. That runs from 1-1 through 2-3. We spent a long time in the prologue, didn't we? It's one distinct section. And then Genesis 2-4 through 17 looks at the creation of Adam and of God's covenant with him in the garden. We spend a lot of time in that section, 2-4 through 17. And then 2-18 through 25 has the creation of Eve as its focus. Each section begins with a problem. Do you notice that? Each section begins with a problem. Something is not quite right. Something is not finished or complete. What was the problem in Genesis 1-1 at the beginning of the prologue? In the beginning, God created the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, but the earthly realm was first without form and void and darkness, was over the face of the deep. Do you remember that? It's a problem. Here God is beginning His work of creation. He creates the heavenly realm and earthly realm, but the earth, the earthly realm, is not yet suitable for human habitation. It's not a place where man can dwell. It's unformed. There's darkness there. It's a scary place, you know. Uh, man cannot live there. And then what follows in the prologue, except a description of the solution to that problem. God brought form to the unformed earth. He filled the earth with uh, that, that was at first void. He caused light to shine in the darkness. He formed the earth into a place suitable for human habitation. Now, what was the problem at the beginning of the section starting at Genesis 2-4? Well, Genesis 2-5 took us back chronologically to a time when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. This is a problem, isn't it? How can life be sustained on planet earth without vegetation? either the kind that grows in the wild or the kind that is cultivated by man. There was none of that. It's a problem. And why was there no vegetation? We're told because the Lord had not caused it to rain yet on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, Genesis 2.5. And what follows in that section except a description of God solving that problem? What did God do to bring a solution to that problem of no vegetation on the earth that had been formed? Well, two things. He caused it to rain, and He created the man. That is what verse 7 says. And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. It was now raining. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. God brought a solution to the problem that that functioned, that that was at the head of, of that second section of the book of Genesis. And do you see that this third section, which is actually the second scene of seven, if we begin counting from two four. It also begins with a problem. What is the problem? Well, having again moved back chronologically to that brief period of time that the male existed apart from the female human, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And then what is the solution? What is the solution to that problem? Again, it is God who is the solution to the problem. He is the one who who provides the solution to the problem. It is God who finishes what is unfinished. The Lord God said, I will make a helper fit for him. In other words, God said, I am going to create a creature who is able to walk alongside this man 
to be a help to him, to assist him, to fulfill, to fill up that which is lacking in him. This creature that I will make is going to fit the man. This creature will correspond to him so that the two are compatible. And only after the male human and female human are made can human life be sustained on planet Earth. It is absolutely astonishing to me, brothers and sisters, that people find this teaching offensive. This idea that men and women are made in the image of God and are therefore equal, but they are substantially different also. This idea that, that the female was made to correspond and complement the male. Why is this offensive? Is it not beautiful to you to think about God's design for things? Is it not beautiful for you to think about the differences between uh, men and women? Of course, now that we have fallen into sin, those differences sometimes cause problems. Uh, no doubt about that. But really, when we consider God's original design, this is beautiful. This is beautiful what God did at the beginning of time. He created humanity with plurality in it, male and female. They were made to complement one another. They were made to correspond to one another. They were made to fit together. They were made to have a, relation with, a relationship with one another. I think it is beautiful to recognize these things. And I think it is beautiful to recognize that it was only after God made the male and female that God was able to say, Behold, it is very good. When the male existed alone, God could not say it is good, for something was still incomplete or lacking. By the way, this saying, It is not good that the man should be alone, cannot be applied specifically to each individual male and or female, as if it were saying, It is not good for a man to remain single or unmarried. I hope you can recognize this. I read this passage at wedding ceremonies all the time, uh, the one that we are now considering. It is not good for a man to be alone. I mean, it is an important passage to read at wedding ceremonies. But always in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I hope people don't take this the wrong way because at, at weddings, you know that in the audience, there are lots and lots of single people, right? And I'm thinking to myself, I wish I had time to explain this. It's not time for preaching, though, or teaching. Uh, this does not mean that it is never good for a person to remain Single. It, it cannot mean that. And I will explain, I will explain why. Now, how do we know that it doesn't mean this? Well, think for a moment about this. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, was he married? Tell me. Some will say that he was. It's ridiculous, though. He was not. He was not married. He was a single man, and yet he was the second Adam. In fact, he was the, the, the supreme Adam, the perfect Adam, was he not? And was he married? No. So this idea, it is not good for man to be alone, it obviously is not being applied to every individual person. It, it means something It means something else. Also, in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, Paul says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good. Do you hear it? I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. 1 Corinthians 7, 8. So in certain situations, Paul actually encourages the single life and calls it, Good. Now, if what Genesis 2 means, it is not good for a man to be alone, means that singleness is never good, then we have a blatant contradiction in the pages of Holy Scripture, don't we? We have God saying that something is not good, and Paul saying that it is, is good. Uh, and so, that cannot be what Genesis 2.18 means. In Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. We cannot take it to mean that singleness is bad. We cannot take it that way, for Christ was never married, and God Himself says through the Apostle that it is good for them to remain single as I am. In the coming weeks, we will spend some time talking about the marriage relationship. 
And if you are single now, please hear me. There is nothing bad about that. There is nothing not good about that. There is nothing lacking in you as an individual person because you are single. Quite to the contrary, please recognize that the Scriptures do in some ways promote the single life and highlight the value of it. This is something we do not talk about enough, I think, within the church. Is marriage good? Yes, it is. It is a very good thing. But also, is there value to the single life? Is the single life also good? Yes, in certain circumstances and situations, it is, it, it is a good thing. If we go to 1 Corinthians 7 and read, uh, there we, we, we hear Paul say it directly. It, it is good. And then a little bit further down, he explains himself. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Not the kind of bad anxiety, worry, and turmoil. But I, I want you to be free from, from concerns. The unmarried man is anxious or concerned about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious, he means concerned, about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. What is Paul saying? When you get married, you have to pay attention to lots and lots of things that you don't have to pay attention to when you are single. And there could be a benefit to that. In fact, if the Lord has gifted you with this gift of of a celibate life, of, of, sing, of single life, it can be used to, to focus all the more on serving the Lord and not having to worry about caring for, for family. You know, is marriage good? Is family good? Yes, the Scriptures promote it. But also the Scriptures promote the single life as well. And, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, Paul says, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided attention to the Lord. Whether you're married or unmarried, your undivided attention should be given to the Lord. Amen? So the saying found in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone, has a specific reference to Adam as the first human and to humanity in general. Adam needed a companion to fulfill his task and humanity simply could not survive unless there was a male human and a female human to correspond to one another. Ordinarily, men and women are to come together in the covenant of marriage and to procreate. They are to fill the earth with the glory of God, and they are to complement one another as husband and wife. This was God's original design, and it remains such uh, to this very day, though sin has certainly complicated things. In Genesis 2.18, the problem and the solution to the problem are stated The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. That is the problem, and here is the solution. I will make him a helper fit for him. And in verses 19 and following, the process of God making a helper suitable for the man is then described to us. In verse 19, we read that, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam's naming of the animals is very significant. It demonstrates that he has authority or dominion over them. In the scriptures, when someone is named, the one doing the naming has authority or lordship over the named. Uh, Think of those who had their names changed by God. What does it demonstrate except for that God now has lordship over that individual? Adam named the animals, demonstrating his dominion over them. Uh, Notice also that the male human now has a name. First time we hear his name in the narrative. He is now called Adam, which simply means man. 
Uh, the Hebrew word, uh, which is translated as Adam in 2020, or 220 rather, it actually has appeared many times throughout this passage, but always with the definite article. And so it is rightly translated in our English translations, the man. So you have seen that throughout the text, the man, the man, the man. But here in 220, we find this Hebrew word for the first time without the definite article. And so here it is not the man, but rather it is Adam. Adam is his name. So here Adam is naming all of the animals. He is going through this process, and all of a sudden he emerges from that with a name of his own. Who named Adam, I ask you? Did one of the animals do it? I do not think so. Instead, Adam emerges with a name, Adam. The man emerges with a name, Adam. And it was God who, who named him, uh, signifying that God is the one who has lordship or authority over, over the man. But in the process of naming all the animals, Adam found that there was not a helper fit for him. It's as if Adam said, all of these animals have their match. They each have their companion, but none of them corresponds to me. Among all the living creatures on earth, I have not found another that has been made in God's image as I have. What a beautiful scene. You can almost picture these animals being paraded in front of Adam, and he is doing the naming, but he is just left disappointed time and time again. None of these creatures, though they have life in them, though they are living creatures, though they are, though they are creatures of a high order, they're, they're different from the rocks and the plants that God has made. They have the breath of life in them in, in some way. None of them are image bearers of God. None of them correspond to me. I think this is probably a good time to address the question what was Adam looking for in his search for a creature that was fit for him? Uh, what would it have looked like for him to find someone who actually corresponded to him? Uh, men and women, they correspond to one another in many ways. We know this. Uh, we correspond to one another physically, don't we? Together we are able to procreate. Uh, when a man and woman come together physically, they are able to produce another life, with which we see it happen all the time. Isn't it? Amazing, though, that this can happen. What an incredible thing it is that a man and a woman can come together physically and produce another life. Um, and indeed, this has something to do with what Adam was looking for. Uh, none of the animals were like Adam. Uh, they were living creatures, but they were of a different kind. But I want for you to notice that the focus of the narrative is not upon procreation at this point. Notice that Adam is not looking for a mate. But what is he looking for? He's actually looking for a companion. He's looking for something more than a mate. He is looking for a companion, a helper fit for him. Uh, men and women correspond to one another physically. Together we are able to reproduce. But And this is not an unimportant observation. Uh, certainly one of the reasons that it was not good that the man should be alone was because the male left to his, himself would not be able to reproduce. That's a problem, isn't it? He would not be able to fill the earth as God had commanded him to do with the image of God. But Adam was not looking for a mate. He was looking for a helper fit for him. What are some of the other ways that men and women uniquely correspond to one another? I want you to think of it for a moment. Picture all of the creatures of the earth. Picture the birds the sea creatures, the land animals, and picture a male and female standing there uh, in the midst of them all. How do these creatures, the male human and female human, correspond to one another in a way not true of any of the other creatures? 
Uh, the male and female can procreate. This has already been established. But think of this. The, the men and women can also do something else. They can communicate. They can communicate with one another. Men and women can do something that no other creature on planet Earth can do. We can talk. It's really a fascinating thing to consider. We can talk with one another, and we can talk with God. This has to do with us being made in God's image, I'm sure. We can talk. No other animal can talk in the way that humans can talk. We can communicate with one another. Adam was not looking for a mate, brothers and sisters. Adam was looking for a helper fit for him. He was searching for a companion. He was looking for another image bearer of God. He was searching for a creature to commune with. He was looking for someone to walk alongside him in his quest to live in perpetual obedience to his maker. He needed to find another creature made in God's image, one that he could communicate with, who could also commune with God. None was found And so God solved this problem. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. He brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Notice two things about the creation of the woman. One, Whereas man was created by God from the dust of the ground, the woman was created by God from the man. This is very significant. It it agrees with what was said in Genesis chapter 1 that that the man and woman are are essentially the same, aren't they? They're essentially the same. Woman is taken out of man. Indeed, it is true that God created man, male and female, both in the image of God. They are essentially the same. But uh, two, notice that man named the woman, which also signifies his headship, over her. And in fact, I have three observations to make, and not two, as I said just a minute ago. Notice that the woman was taken from the man's side, specifically. And this signifies companionship. This signifies companionship. I do love this quote from the old commentator Matthew Henry. You've probably heard his name before. But here is what he says concerning the fact that that woman was taken specifically out of man's side from, from his rib. He says, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I think this is more than just beautiful uh, poetry, if we can call it that. It's more than just beautiful words that Matthew Henry has expressed here. It is really getting at the heart of what is trying to be expressed by the narrative. Why did God tell us that Eve was taken out of man's side from one of his ribs. It's in order to signify. This is what narrative does. It teaches through through the story. This is what is being signified. Here is the the proper relationship between man and woman. The woman is not taken from his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Actually, I have four observations concerning this, not three or two. Notice that man's response is very poetic. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It doesn't come through in the English quite as beautifully as it does in the Hebrew, but it is clearly poetry. Uh, What does Adam say? He basically says, she is perfect. She is perfect. Finally, one who is like me, one who is compatible 
to me, with me, a helper fit for me. My third and very brief observation about this text in general, the third point of the sermon, is to notice that the man and woman were joined together by God in the covenant of marriage. In verse 24, the narrative breaks, and we actually hear the voice of the author as he comments on the relationship between the first man and woman. There's, there's kind of a, a declaration that is made here. In verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's as if uh, the author of Genesis is saying, Here's the story, now let me interpret it for you. What we have just witnessed is a marriage relationship being established. We have just witnessed a wedding. What do we have, therefore, in Genesis 2? It's a description of the first marriage. Who arranged this marriage, by the way? It was God who arranged it. He was the matchmaker. Uh, They are made one flesh, not by physical bond alone, but by covenant. Just as God entered into a covenant of works with the man in the garden, now man enters into the covenant of marriage with the helper that God made from. I think this is very significant here. Covenant of works has just been described to us now. The marriage covenant has been described And indeed, we know from the rest of Holy Scripture that the marriage covenant is meant to reflect something of the relationship that exists between God and man. There's a reason these two things are placed side by side here in this passage. Adam and Eve were married. They entered into a covenant with one another. I read from Mark 10 at the beginning of the sermon. It's a very important text on the issue of marriage and on the topic of divorce and remarriage. Someday we'll look at it carefully But I read from it at the beginning of the sermon today to illustrate how foundational this entire passage is. Remember that Jesus was being questioned by the Pharisees regarding the issue of divorce. And what did uh, Jesus say? How did he respond? He asked them, well, what did Moses command you? What books did Moses write, by the way? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Pentateuch, right? Where did the Pharisees go? They went back to Deuteronomy to that passage where Moses explicitly permits divorce. But what did Jesus say? He said, no, you have not gone back far enough. You've quoted Moses, that is good, but Moses said something else too. Genesis came from his hand. But from the beginning of creation, Jesus says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here is Jesus' basic teaching on the subject of marriage. You're asking me if divorce is permitted. Well, Jesus says according to the creation narrative, that foundational narrative, the ideal for marriage is that it remain for life, that it be permanent. Uh, Clearly, Jesus himself considered these opening chapters of Genesis foundational. When asked about the marriage relationship and and the issue of divorce, he appealed to them and cited them as being authoritative. And what was his answer to the Pharisees? God's ideal for the marriage relationship is that it would last till death. Husband and wife are to stick to one another. They're to cling to one another like glue till death do us part. Fourthly, and very briefly, In the garden paradise of God, see that the first man and the first woman lived in perfect harmony with one another. I think that is what verse 25 is signifying. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. Uh, The last verse of Genesis 2 serves two purposes. First, it describes the bliss of the garden by emphasizing that there was no shame in that place. Why was there no shame in that place? 
Because at this point in time, there was no sin at all. And so here the man and the woman enjoyed perfect harmony with one another. But this last verse also prepares us for what is coming. And you know what is coming. For we know that Adam will fall from his upright state into sin. And what will the man and woman do after they sin? They hear God walking in the garden. And what do they do? Because they are ashamed, they scurry off into the the, the forest, as it were, into the garden. They just vainly attempt to cover their nakedness. All of a sudden, uh, they know that they are naked. They, They are ashamed of it now because of their sin. And so Genesis 2.25 functions in those ways. Man, that garden was a blissful place. No sin, no shame. But, as we will see, sin enters into the world and brings shame along with it. And, of course, the the marriage relationship that was at once perfect, blessed, harmonious, becomes difficult because of sin. It becomes difficult because of sin. Let me make some points of application before we conclude. It is important as we make these points of application to remember that we do not live in the garden anymore. Do I really need to say it, brothers and sisters? We do not live in the garden anymore. Genesis 2 presents us with the ideal for men and women, and for the marriage relationship. It is the ideal, and we need to keep that in mind. But everything, now that we have fallen into sin, has been radically distorted by sin. I I want for you to take some time this evening and in the following week, and as you meet together in your gospel community groups, perhaps you can discuss this. Uh, Think of all of the ways that these foundational truths established in Genesis chapter 2 have been radically distorted in the world in general and in our culture In particular, it should not be difficult for you to think of God's design for men and women, the similarities that they share in common, the differences that they have by the design of God, the marriage relationship itself. Think of all of the ways in which this has been radically distorted by sin and discuss it. And also remember this, I am speaking to you assuming that most, if not all of you, have a personal relationship with Christ, you have faith in Christ, you have believed upon Him, and if you are in Christ, if you have faith in Him, then you have been renewed in Christ. You have been renewed in Christ. Now, what does this mean? I must ask you questions like this, therefore. If you have been renewed in Christ through faith in the second Adam, are you the man that God created you to be? Are you the man that God created you to be? A certain purpose was was given to Adam upon his creation. Are you living out that purpose for your life? Some things have changed after the fall, but some things remain the same. Are you walking faithfully, therefore, before your God? Now that you have been renewed in Christ, are you living holy before you? Are you the woman that God created you, you to be? I could ask this as well. Is your marriage what God intended it to be? Is your marriage relationship harmonious? You, husband, are you fulfilling the role that God has called you to take in the marriage relationship, established and introduced at creation, also reiterated even in the pages of the New Testament? Are you being the husband that God has called you to be? Are you leading your wife in a loving way? Are you tender and compassionate with her? Are you patient with her? Are you understanding towards her? Is your marriage relationship harmonious because you are taking your responsibilities as the man seriously? The husband is called the head of the wife and the pages of the New Testament. All of that is rooted in this creation account, but it is made explicitly clear still today. Are you functioning as the head of your household, as Adam was supposed to function at the beginning of time? 
I do sympathize with those who do not have faith in Christ. Uh, This is still how their marriage relationship is to be, but how difficult it would be to fulfill these designs if you have not been first renewed in Christ, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. I might ask the same question of the wife. Are you fulfilling your marital obligations? Are you taking that position or that role that God has called you to take within the marriage relationship? Are you living in submission to your husband, honoring him? Are you a help to him? Are you a companion to him? Brothers and sisters, I I ask you this. Is there true companionship in your marriage? Is there true companionship? Is there true communication that is taking place? I hope that the answer is yes. I would suspect that everyone in this room would probably say, not exactly as it should be. May the Lord help us in this. In Christ, we should expect renewal, and therefore we should expect growth and progress to be taking place in these things, that we would be the men and women that God has called us to be, and that our marriages would truly be what God uh, expects more and more as we grow in Christ, as we are sanctified Him, as we individually grow more and more into the image of Christ by whom we have been saved. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You've been renewed in Christ Jesus, and you are being renewed in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, may it have an impact even upon our marriage relationships. Are you growing in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness? Are you being made more and more into the image of Christ? Brothers and sisters, thanks be to God for Christ crucified and risen. Everything has been so distorted by sin, but it is in Him that we place all of our hope in this life, and for the life to come. And all of God's people say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us as we consider your word. Help us in the weeks to come as we give more careful attention to the marriage relationship. Father, help us all that we would think clearly about these things. Father, where our thinking is unclear, straighten it out, we pray. I pray, Father, that you would help us individually, those who are single, those who are married, that we would truly live according to your design, and according to your particular call upon our lives. Lord, give us contentment in these things. Give us, above all else, victory over sin. Oh, Lord, how sin disrupts everything. Lord, we tend to be so selfish and prideful. Uh, Lord, we tend to be so angry and bitter at times. Lord, our hearts sometimes uh, are so blackened by sin and the effects of it. Lord, we hate it. And we ask that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would help us to to cleanse our hearts before you. Lord, uh, do this for your glory. But, Lord, we also ask that you do it for our good. How we long to reap the benefits and the fruit of living in a way that is holy before you. Father, and we are asking that it would not just be external holiness, the appearance of righteousness, but that you would transform us to the very core of our being, Lord. Lord, we are asking that you would have mercy on us, that you would give us more of your grace for your glory, honor, and praise. And all of God's people say, Amen.